When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that is even more fertile than I first imagined. Bat music. The Batman is out now. Great movie. It has an amazing score, but it also has a Nirvana song. Something in the Way is a recurring theme in this movie. Played at the beginning very prominently, it's played at the end with a whole new feeling to it, and it really jumps out in the movie And the song is massively up in streams, more than a 1,200% increase in streams of Something in the Way on Spotify. If you Google it, Something in the Way is, uh, for better or worse, now known as the Nirvana Batman song. It's now the second most popular Nirvana song on Spotify overall, right after Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is wild for a song that was never a single, never had a video. It all seemed like a good excuse to talk about that and then to delve into the entire history of bat music. To help me do that, to start out, I have with me David Fear. And we'll start with the use of something in the way in The Batman. It's funny because the director, Matt Reeves, said in advance in interviews that this was kind of a Kurt Cobain Batman. And that he was listening to something in the way when he was writing the first act of the screenplay and defining Bruce Wayne as a much more reclusive and sort of emo version of the character than we've seen before. And people's first reaction to that idea, of course, was total mockery. Like, this sounds terrible. But I don't know. It kind of worked. It worked. I think it kind of works for this movie, yeah. I think for what he wanted to do for The Batman, he talks about Bruce Wayne not as the kind of socializing playboy that we've known in past iterations of Bruce Wayne. He compares him to a drug addict. I think he compares him to being a drug addict even before he compares him to Kurt Cobain. And then he throws Cobain's name in there, and you're sort of like, like Bruce Wayne as Kurt Cobain? That doesn't track. The only time they've ever appeared together before is someone has got to have used that in rap lyrics. I would presume that the rhyme has been used. But other than that, they've never been juxtaposed. But sorry, go on. I swear to God, I'm going to pour through my Lil Wayne mixtapes after this, and like I'm going to find that couplet. And so he talked about writing the script and listening to that song, and then the song shows up in the trailer, and you're like, okay, so... They're slapping a pop song on a trailer. And then when you see the film, it is weird how it kind of syncs up perfectly with the the tone of this film. It feels like a completely different type of Batman movie, even while you can see similarities to the post-Frank Miller dark revisionist idea of Batman as, you know, the haunted, traumatic, near-psychotic vigilante of the night thing. I'm one of those people that, like, I don't want Nirvana music showing up in any movie. I feel like just, just leave it alone. And yet... Somehow this kind of works. I'm with you. It kind of works. It's trending on TikTok. It's trending on Spotify. And as you were saying before the show, it's a unique Nirvana song. It kind of prefigured the Nirvana unplug thing because instead of quiet loud, it's just quiet. Also, the line about, you know, eating fish because they don't have any feelings felt more like a Penguin song than a Bruce Wayne song, but whatever works. The idea that uh, a song that Kurt Cobain wrote about hanging out 
underneath the bridge. The apocryphal myth behind that song was that he was homeless for a while and lived under that bridge. And he kind of wrote from that, like a very first person perspective from that. And while he was homeless for a while, I think for like four months in like 1990, it was around the time he first started kind of playing around with the ideas for what would become this song. He didn't live under there. He was living in people's hallways. I think at one point he was living in a cardboard box on Melvin's drummer, Dale Grover's porch or something. He said he was writing from the perspective of someone who would have lived under there. And by the way, you know, the, people don't know this, but at least 30% of all songs written between 1990 and 1994 were in some way about living under a bridge. Which uh, <laughs> is the main topic of songwriting. In the rest of musical history, love was the main topic, yeah. but living under a bridge, uh, for some reason, really took over. It was very Moon Spoon June under a bridge. Sometimes I like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel That's how it worked. Uh, what I thought was kind of insightful of Matt Reeves is that what that song specifically keys into in the movie is Bruce Wayne's childhood trauma. And thank God we are not given yet another scene of slow motion pearls falling down. What we get instead is this Nirvana song, which clearly is the real pain that Kurt was singing about, even though it's about this period later in his life. It seems to really key into whatever the, the, the sort of childhood pain of that inner child of Kurt that never healed. And it was kind of his whole problem. And then that song seems to dig deep into that and he connected that there's this when when batman sees it's so hard to talk to say the word batman in a serious sentence but i'm trying <laughs> but when <laughs> i've been doing it my whole life but it's still ridiculous when batman sees the child of gotham city's mayor who's been murdered and he identifies with the child's pain of losing a parent and that's when something in the way kicks in yep. and later in the movie it returns when he sort of grappling with a new way of dealing with this trauma. And so I, I thought that was actually kind of like pretty brilliant. Subconsciously, at least, that's why people are, are responding uh, so, so strongly to it. Honestly, that's a really great interpretation of it. I think you're right. I think it's significant that it shows up when by seeing this kid who's just become orphaned and is in a state of confusion and pain, that's when his own inner child, for lack of a better term, comes out. And that's the song. The song, like you said, is really, it's like all that internal pain that he's got, you know, which is what kind of fuels his, his nighttime escapades. It feels like there haven't been enough memorable superhero themes in recent years, at least. But Michael Giacchino's score for the Batman, I thought, had some really good moments. And he definitely keyed into something in the way. It seems like some of his music was inspired by that song, which is a really interesting approach. I'm actually pretty sure that's what he did. I would be surprised if it wasn't deliberately done, especially because it seemed to be such a touchstone for Reeves and the script and the tone that they were going for. I mean, you can't really think of a lot of memorable superhero movie soundtracks other than possibly the Hans Zimmer Dark Knight stuff, which is its own sort of like, you know, wonderful Zimmer-esque, you know, bombast and kind of works with those movies beautifully. I don't think you need a Hans Zimmer score for this. I don't think you need, you know, a John Williams type score for this. Those are usually the two templates that superhero films follow in one way or another. This is a lot moodier. There's not a lot of bombast here. Plus there's so many great musical motifs in that Nirvana song, like so much stuff to just play with. 
that if you're going to write a score and you're using a lot of those bits and pieces as sort of the building blocks, you've got a lot to work with. And I thought Giacchino's main Batman theme was really cool, really ominous, really powerful. People compared it to John Williams' Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back, which I guess it does vaguely resemble. But I think it stands on its own. Yeah, it doesn't resemble it to the point where you keep waiting for Darth Vader. But there is a tremendous history of Batman music, and that's why I got excited to uh, do this show. There's so much more to talk about than you might think. Let's go all the way back. Let's go back to Batman, 1966 Batman, the 60s Batman series, and the Batman theme song. Perhaps one of the greatest songs of all time. It is so simple. It has a one-word lyric. Yep. Unless you count na 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 na. I do, and, but yeah, uh, basically. It, 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 it carries the, the one-word lyric around a one four five chord change. It's the essence of <laughs> rock and roll. It's the greatest rock and roll song ever recorded. It's really interesting. Neil Hefty, right? Yeah. Composed it. Yeah, he's, and, a, he's a jazz trumpeter and uh, a big band arranger. Worked with Count Basie, I believe. He's been around for a while. I don't know if this is as much of a household piece of music as it once was, but he also composed the odd couple music. Which is very deeply embedded in my psyche as well. So uh, no lightweight, as they say in the Big Lebowski. But it was really interesting to... I had never read about the actual creation of, of the Batman theme song. And of course, the Batman TV show was, people might not realize it, it was in essence a parody of the original Batman serials, the serial films from the 40s. The, there was a thing where they were showing them at the Playboy Mansion and people were really enjoying them and kind of both enjoying them and laughing at them at the same time as this sort of, you know, the essence of camp. And what... The reason that there's the this sort of portentous uh, narration, will Batman survive and all that, that's all based on the old serials. So this was already, it was already much more sort of pop culturally reflexive than people might understand. It was based on something from 20 years prior, as well as the comics themselves. But they were looking for a song that kind of embodied all of that, that it would kind of be serious, but kind of funny. Yeah. And Neil Hefty said that in his entire career, he never worked harder <laughs> on anything than the Batman theme. We were both reading about this. He worked for at least a full month to, to craft this rather simple piece of music. He wasn't a rock guy. So it's almost like he had to contort himself into the shape of this rock thing. He said they tore up a lot of paper and sweated over it. And Batman was not a comedy. This was about unreal people. Batman and Robin were both very, very serious. The bad guys would be chasing them, and they would come to a stop at a red light. They wouldn't break the law even to save their own lives. So there was a grimness and a self-righteousness about all this. So, so he put a lot of thought into it, and it's just an actual masterpiece. And what apparently in 1966, because the other thing is people might not realize here now many, many years later is 
the first time that Batman was an enormous cultural phenomenon. Obviously, it had been in comic books and in, in, in movie serials for many years beforehand. But the first time that Batman became bigger than Superman, because that's actually yeah. still the case to this day. Yeah. The first time that Batman became bigger than Superman was in 1966, when this TV show was an absolute phenomenon. By the way, well, neither of us were alive for this, for the record. We're not reminiscing here. We're talking about history. But the TV show was... An absolute smash was on the cover of Life magazine, and the theme song, apparently, for that year, became the most recorded song of that year. It, he won a Grammy for it, and a million people recorded it. We found a, a page of 20 different versions, some and, recorded that year, some recorded much later. And that's just the start. And we're not talking about a, you know, nothing but a bunch of no-name bar bands that were covered. Like, The Who was covering this. There's a great cover by The Kinks, where you can hear... Just to hear Ray Dave, like very the very distinctly Ray Davies' <laughs> voice, that lovely lilt to it, singing Batman, Batman, na 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 na. There was my my favorite cover actually of it is by the Ventures, which seems weird because it already sounds like a Ventures song. It sounds like they took like most of the DNA from Wooly Bully, which was recorded a year before the Batman theme was. And then grafted it onto like a, a Ventures surf rock thing, and you know, with a 12 bar blues thing happening underneath it. And you, when you listen to the Ventures version of it, it starts off where it's basically like, you know, no, 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 typical kind of surf rocky reverby thing. And then it goes into the Batman, Batman bit. And then it kind of goes into this weird surf rock exploration. There's a weird turnaround in the middle of it. Like, it starts throwing in all these Latin kind of flamenco guitar flourishes into there. It's, like, absolutely just mind-boggling because it's, you know that melody that, I mean, I have to hesitate to even call it a melody. It's just basically this kind of driving thing that they keep repeating over and over. And uh, then to kind of hear somebody be like, all right, and now this is the part where we take off. And it just, the Avengers kind of take off with it. What was the name of the R.E.M.? attempt to redo it? The R.E.M. did, it's not really a remake of the theme, it's just sort of, it's an attempt, and it's hilarious that it was rejected from the soundtrack for Batman Returns. They, they did kind of just like a Batman song, with Michael Stipe singing Batman, we'll hear, we'll hear that a little bit. Then when it was rejected, they released it as the B-side to Drive and called it Winged Mammal Theme. Winged uh, Mammal so, Theme. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Very Riddler-esque. The Who cover, I, I think what's fun to notice there is that Keith Moon really wanted the Who to do surf music all the time. And so I'm quite sure that the reason that's the reason they recorded it, that's what's most distinctive about the Who's version is just that you wish that Keith could play on the original recording, which I listened to. I don't think I ever listened to the original Batman theme on headphones until today. And it, it's very interesting. There is an interesting thing where the horns and the voices are very closely doubled, and it creates a very interesting effect. So it, it earned its Grammy. I, I did want to talk about another artifact of the 60s before I forget. There was this absolutely insane project 
where Burt Ward, who played, uh, of course, Robin in the 60s Batman TV show, somehow teamed up with none other than Frank Zappa to record a single they released and several other songs that have been bootlegged. I guess it kind of falls into the William Shatner, Mr. Tambourine <laughs> Man. People seem to think that basically Frank Zappa was basically fucking with Burt Ward. Burt Ward thought he was making a serious artistic project and Frank Zappa was doing Frank Zappa stuff. But it, it's a true... The, the single that was released is called Boy Wonder I Love You and, and it, it's... We'll, have to, we'll play a little bit of, of it because words cannot describe. Boy Wonder I actually had no idea this existed. It feels like an artifact from from another universe. It is so, so bizarre. I'm so glad it exists. Yeah, me too. And it's funny because when you sent this to me, I listened to it. And when you <laughs> when you read Frank Zappa makes a record with Burt Ward, there's before you've heard a single note, there's a song that starts playing in your head because all these disparate elements start coming together. And then you listen to the actual song and you're like, oh, this is even better than I am at. Like, this, this is even better than Frank Zappa makes a, Bert, makes a song with Burt Ward. Um, and you're right. I think it does kind of fall into that, that Shatner Uncanny Valley. It's a good way of putting it because there was that whole thing throughout the 60s where you had, you know, actors trying to kind of double into like pop stars. There's an unreleased song uh, called The Teenage Bill of Rights that, <laughs> that Burt Ward Recorded with Zappa and actually basically with the Mothers of Invention. What? Nothing we do should go unnoticed. Not even the smallest deed. And no one should even question our color race or creed. It was a collaboration between Robin from the Batman TV show and the Mothers of Invention. I, I truly, I cannot help picturing him in full Robin costume at the mic. Yeah. I realize he was wearing street clothes, but that in my head is he's, in, he's dressed as Robin, Frank Zappa's dressed as Frank Zappa, and it happened, and it's it's truly a fantastic moment. I, I stand my I stand by my contention, Brian, that it should have been called uh, "Boy Wonders Ripped My Flesh." <laughs> Very good. Where Prince's soundtrack for the nineteen eighty nine, you know, Tim Burton version of Batman fits in, I couldn't begin to tell you. But I can say that, like, when you listen to that Danny Elfman score, you know, it again fits the mood of that film perfectly. Especially when you think like, oh, like I don't know about you, when I think about Danny Elfman scores, the first thing I hear in my head is Breakfast Machine from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is like a weird riff on Flight of the Bumblebee with a kind of oingo boingo, you know, Calliope music kind of thing happening all around it. And then you listen to, I was listening to the bat, the opening theme of the 89 Batman this, this morning, and I was amazed by how you can hear these little kind of Elfman-esque tinkles like almost like wind chimes happening beneath this very, very small thing. And then suddenly it just goes full metal Wagnerian and becomes this kind of very orchestrated, very heavy, heavy kind of score. And that's the movie in a nutshell, really. It's just quirky and eccentric enough that you can feel that there's a sensibility behind it. And it's just big and bombastic enough that you can, you're reminded that this was a blockbuster that had global recognition when it came out. I mean, I think that Danny Elfman's Batman theme, and obviously that's what's strange about the original, uh, the Tim Burton Batman, is it there's sort of a wealth of riches there because as I talk about elsewhere in the episode, there, there was this Prince soundtrack that was sort of foisted upon 
Tim Burton, but and then the then Danny Elfman, who was just sort of beginning his career doing scores. It was around the same time he did the Simpsons theme. He was really just at, at the peak of his powers. He created the, this absolutely stunning Batman theme. Ranks among my my favorite movie scores of all time. It absolutely in musical form embodied the character or specifically that take on the character but so much so that when they uh, attempted to kind of go back to basics with the almost unmentionable Joss Whedon Justice League they brought back Danny Elfman and had and and, and tried to use that theme for mm-hmm. Batfleck What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So I'll get back to my conversation with David in just a few minutes, but I did want to talk at length about Prince and his Batman album, and to do so, I'm bringing on Erica Thompson, who is a total Prince expert. She's been writing about Prince for over a decade. She's also a business reporter at the Columbus Dispatch, and she's working on a book on Prince's spiritual journey and the spiritual themes in his music the most sustained bat effort at music, I think it's safe to say, at least within the pop realm, is the Prince Batman album, a truly unique artifact of pop culture. Some really great songs, some not so great songs. The high points are arguably much higher than people who don't know it might expect. There's some awesome moments, including Bat Dance itself, which people who were not around in the 80s might not realize how ubiquitous that thing was on MTV. Erica, what I was hoping you could do is explain to us where Prince was in his career at that time and a little bit about how this thing happened. Yeah, so Prince might disagree with this, but the perception was he was in desperate need of a comeback. So if you think back to 1984 with Purple Rain, that's his commercial peak. But... You know, moving forward from that, his sales were declining. He wasn't um, making the same amount of hits on the charts. And um, people were just beginning to be really puzzled by his artistic decisions. So Around the World in the Day in 1985 was a drastic departure from Purple Rain. And then you have the Under the Cherry Moon movie, which was a flop. And then Sign of the Times was critically acclaimed, but it didn't sell nearly as well as Purple Rain did. And then you get, you know, shelving the Black album. And then you have Love Sexy, where he's nude on the cover. And it's a spiritual album. And people are like, what is he talking about? And the tour, the Love Sexy tour does really well in Europe. But in the U.S., it just wasn't filling out venues, but it was a really expensive tour. And Prince had spent a lot of money developing Paisley Park. So he really needed to shore up his finances. At least that was the word on the street. So when you have Batman hit, it was like, oh, this (laughs) is a this is a comeback for Prince. This is a rejuvenation because Bat Dance was a number one single. And being a Warner Brothers artist and Warner Brothers is putting out this film. And then you have the producers who want to make this a huge 
blockbuster sensation. They were like, why don't we get Prince for the soundtrack? So that's kind of how that all happened. Right. It was a corporate synergy thing as much as anything else. And Tim Burton did not like that. And what it ended up being, you know, the the music is in the movie, probably most strikingly in a couple Joker scenes, you know, but it, it really ends up being the music in the movie as well as the album, which is sort of inspired by. He met with Jack Nicholson. Prince said that Jack Nicholson reminded him of Morris Day, which I love so much. Absolutely. I think the story goes that Jack Nicholson just kind of sat down and put his foot on the table. (laughs) And then, like, you know, Prince went and wrote Party Man (laughs) based on that. And, of course, the Party Man scene with the Joker destroying the museum, that's, like, iconic now. Absolutely. So... Prince, always the ladies' man, ended up dating the movie's Vicky Vale, Kim Basinger. And that led to a whole thing of its own, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, there's the Scandalous song, and Prince made a maxi single called The Scandalous Sex Suite with different remixes. And on one of those, you do hear her voice. So he did get her to lay down some vocals. And there are some stories about what they may or may not have been doing in the studio, but those are just. But what are some of the highlights and lowlights of the Batman album for you? I personally cannot stand The Arms of Orion. It, it's. It's got to be one of my least favorite Prince songs. Ryan's arms are wide enough to hold us both together, although we're worlds apart. I think it's one of the worst songs Prince has ever made. <laughs> Thank you. But you, yes, now you will have some fans who will debate that and swear that it's a great song, but it's, no, I can say that it's it really is not. But for me, in terms of the highlight of it, I think what's so brilliant about it is how Prince wrote songs from the perspective of different characters. So like a song like The Future and Scandalous, those are Batman songs. Electric Chair and Party Man are Joker songs. Lemon Crush is a Vicky Vale song and so on and so forth. So I think that was a really great way for Prince to incorporate elements of his own personality and interrogate uh, some of the contradictions that we have come to know from his music. Love and lust, the sacred and the profane, male and female, seriousness and silliness. So that's what really sticks out to me. I don't think it's a classic collection of songs by any means. Um, my personal favorite is Vicky Waiting though, just because I think it's so funky, so soulful. And there's some introspective lyrics. I mean, he's writing about the movie, but then he's also talking about, like, fatherhood. I mean, Electric Chair, that rock song, it just goes. And if you go look up his performance of it on Saturday Night Live, it's just a really, really great song. I saw your friend first. That's who I danced with. All the time I was watching you. I did want to talk a little bit more about Bat Dance, which I... I always liked the different musical sections bumping up against each other, the use of samples, which isn't necessarily something that people associated with Prince, all the samples from the movie, the playing on it, especially in the long version, there's some insane electric guitar. Obviously, it's a novelty, 
by its very essence, in that it's you know it's based around like Jack Nicholson vocal samples and stuff from a, a movie from 1989. But I think it's very very cool. I do too, but I'm a little bit younger, so I wasn't able to experience this in real time. And like I have a little suspicion that because the movie was so big, that elevated that song. Like if he had released a similar song like that and it wasn't part of this extravaganza, would that have gone number one? I don't know. But I do agree with you about the sampling, and that's something that Prince got really good at, especially in the nineties, as he, you know, experimented with hip hop. But I do agree. It's an interesting song. Do I skip it when I play the album? Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) It took over MTV and it was a brilliant video. I I picture him being both Batman and the Joker at once in the video, which is brilliant. You know, Prince in relationship to a comic book universe is really interesting. He always dressed like he was in some kind of comic book. He possibly was a supervillain or a superhero, depending on, on his mood. I agree with that. And keep in mind, Prince's astrological sign is Gemini. And that kind of goes with the way he had his face painted that you mentioned in the videos, one side white, you know, painted white. But he even wrote, he, and according to the liner notes, he wrote Bat Dance from the perspective of Gemini, along with all the cast of characters from the movie. And you don't know who Gemini is. Um, but Prince, that duality is just a part of who he is. And I think he really embodies both the Joker with his comedic side, his whimsical side with his music, but then also uh, Batman. And one of the movie's producers, John Peters, had a great quote about that. He said, in a way, Prince is Batman. He's a very dark character, and he's complex and kind of mysterious and explosive. Yes, I will say that the one time I got to interview him, he did truly appear over my shoulder from nowhere from the shadows, (laughs) magically, just like Batman. And truly, there were elements of Paisley Park Especially, you know, he kept the lights dim. He was saving money by that point. So the lights were off a lot of places. They kind of went on as you went into the areas. They were automatic. But there was a lot of darkness in there. The Purple Rain motorcycle was up in the corner. It was like the Batcave. And by the way, the Purple Rain motorcycle looks a lot like Batgirl's motorcycle from the 60s Batman TV series. And I've never thought that was a coincidence. Oh, my Uh, gosh. I never thought about that. You may be onto something there. And if anyone would be open to taking from Batgirl's motorcycle, it definitely would be Prince. He wouldn't mind one bit. I think it's interesting that, you know, not only did Prince do a whole soundtrack, but Danny Elfman did the score. So at that point, you had very few films that had two albums associated with the movie. And and Danny, you know... There are parts of that experience that he wasn't too happy with. And I think it is unfortunate that it's a little bit hard for Tim Burton to look back on this on this project because he felt the music got a little bit away from him and thought there was too much Prince music in the movie. But he is a fan of Prince. So I just think that that was really unfortunate. And I think the other thing that I wanted to mention is that Yes, this was sort of a comeback for Prince, but it didn't really change that trajectory that he was on commercially because the very next year he does the Graffiti Bridge movie, which basically ended his film career, and the soundtrack didn't fare very well either, even though I do, I personally like the soundtrack. Um, It really wasn't until 1991 with Diamonds and Pearls. Diamonds and Pearls. Yeah. Yeah. Cream. Yeah. Exactly. Cream was number one, but he didn't have another number one album until 2006 with 3121. So that just kind of shows you the 
this brilliant superstar just wasn't at the top of the charts anymore. So thanks again to Erica Thompson for joining me. Now, David Fear, I have a question, a, a trivia question. Tim Burton's second Batman movie, Batman Returns, did not have a Prince soundtrack. But here's the trivia question. I think a lot of people would get this wrong. Is there or is there not a Susie and the Banshees song in the Batman Returns soundtrack? I think a lot of people would say no, but the answer is yes. It was written with Danny Elfman, and it specifically addresses the plot points of Batman Returns. Face to face, my lovely father, mouth to mouth. I must admit I had no memory of this at all. Do you remember this? Did you have any idea? I'm sh- I've totally forgotten it if I remembered it in the first place, although it <laughs> makes perfect sense given, like, you know, Burton's vibe that he would go to Susie Sue and and have her do something for the, the you know the Batman sequel thing. No, I totally forgotten that though. Like that that sounds amazing. There are so many forgotten riches in the history of bat music. It's just it is it is a fertile topic. The Jill Schumacher movies about which said the less the better, but they they did have, you know, there was there was a lot of music that that kind of just came with the movies. There's an excellent U2 song, I believe a Zuropa outtake, called Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. They made a cool video that was very Batman-themed. I feel like I've seen U2 do Batman-related images to this day for the song on stage. But... To my knowledge, the lyrics have have literally nothing to do with Batman. They were appropriated for Batman, as was uh, Kiss from a Rose was by, by Seal, which also, to my knowledge, was not, you know, like written for Batman, but became a, a Batman thing. Seal had the song kind of kicking around or he'd recorded it and somehow it didn't get on his his album and then he either submitted it or they, they'd asked for uh, something and then he was like, well, ah, you can just listen to this. And I mean, now I'm trying to think of another Seal song that's better known. You know what I mean? There was the song, that was that one single off his first album that kind of broke him, but like everybody knows Kiss from a Rose, even if they don't know that it came from a Batman movie. It's vastly outlasted Batman Forever itself. Yeah. Uh, and despite the <laughs> that the video, by the way, and I've also forgotten this, has Seal performing this song alongside the Bat Signal uh, and directed by <laughs> Joel Schumacher. <laughs> Tragically, the Christopher Nolan Bat movies did not have any pop music of any kind. Let's just play a game for a second. Like, who would have been the ideal pop star or pop group to, like, submit a song for The Dark Knight? The Dark Knight's, what, 2008, right? Uh, I would say Will Smith. I just want a Will Smith... <laughs> A Will Smith song recapping the movie at the end, even though he's not in the movie. I, I think that that's, that's, that's what I would like. Getting batty um, with it. I could totally see that. Batman Begins was 2005. Arcade Fire? That actually would have been killer. Wake yeah, Up. I mean, you could put Wake Up in yeah, there. Just like over the credits? It could have been killer. With the Batman, what's interesting is there's going to be sequels, no doubt. Will he continue drawing from the Nirvana catalog? Will each movie have a new Nirvana song to match Batman's evolving emotional state? I'm just going to, I'm going to say this. You you guys heard it here first on this podcast. I am, I am betting you for this, the Batman two or the, the Batman returns or the Batman's revenge. 
Penny Royalty. I'm calling it now. Yeah, kill the life that's inside of me. Yep. Yep, could be. Yep. Could be. The the Nirvana estate is rubbing its hands. They've just uh, doubled their price. Um, <laughs> well, this has been a journey. Uh, fun idea. <laughs> we carried it to its conclusion. They said we couldn't do it, but it's been done. <laughs> we na 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 our sure. way to the end of this podcast. David Fear, thank you for joining me. And thanks once more to Erica Thompson for joining me as well. And that is our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. We are, in fact, every week on SiriusXM's volume channel 106. But we are primarily a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you possibly can. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.